Today's scripture reading is from Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 9. Please read with me the verses in bold. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with, the righteousness, with righteousness, he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf, wolf, <laughs> the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning. My name is Brad, and I'm one of the pastors here as well, and we're grateful uh, to be together this morning on this first Sunday of Advent, the, the Christian season of the anticipation of the coming of Christ at Christmas, celebration of his first coming, and the anticipation of his return. So over each of the next four weeks here at, at Grace Sacramento, we're going to be looking at one of uh, each of the weeks, one of the most famous passages in the Old Testament book of Isaiah. Um, Isaiah foretold the coming of Jesus something like 600 years before his birth that night in Bethlehem. And some of the most familiar scriptural passages that you may not even know were scripture or may not even have known where Isaiah come from that book. And so we're calling our Advent season 2023 a great light. And I love that the room is twinkling and shimmering this morning and will be for the next four weeks as we uh, recall uh, the passages of Isaiah. Uh, and particularly, we've named, the, we've named the series around that famous passage in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 2, that says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them, a light has shone. And so uh, for the next four weeks and Christmas Eve, a great light, beginning this morning with uh, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9 that we read together in a, in a sermon called A Peaceable Kingdom. Lord Jesus, we pray, uh, Holy Spirit, we pray, God the Father, we pray that you'd be in our midst and that uh, your word, Lord, would uh, comfort those who need comfort, that it would convict those who need confrontation. And Lord, that you'd, be, uh, you'd keep your promise uh, that it would not come back empty, uh, but uh, do its work in us today, we pray in Jesus' name. 
Amen. Another preacher reminded me this week of this painting. I put it up there on the screen. Maybe you recognize it. Uh, The title of the painting is A Peaceable Kingdom. It was painted by a 19th century Quaker by the name of Edward Hicks. Now, maybe you're looking at this painting and saying to yourself, I do recognize this painting. It looks like a painting I've seen before, but this is not it, right? This is very similar to a painting I've seen, but this isn't exactly like it. And that's a very real possibility uh, because Hicks was actually, uh, he, he based this painting on Isaiah chapter 11 that we just read, specifically verses 6 to 9, uh, the passage about lions dwelling with lambs and so on. And he was obsessed with this passage. In fact, he painted it at least 62 different times under the same title, A Peaceable Kingdom. In the version that's on the screen, uh, we not only see Hicks' rendition of a wolf dwelling with a lamb or a lion and a fatted calf together in the foreground, but in the background of the painting, you can see William Penn, the Quaker and founder of Pennsylvania, signing a peace treaty with, Le- with the Lenape peoples. That's uh, the people that the European settlers at the time knew as the Delaware Indians. By picturing such an event along with the lion and the lamb and the child and the snake lying together, drawn from the book of Isaiah chapter 11, many people believe that Hicks was suggesting his belief that the peaceable kingdom foretold by the prophet Isaiah had been or would become a reality in this new world power known as America. And for many years before and many years since, there have been many similar beliefs and aspirations. People, leaders, uh, groups, who had aspirations for their own countries, for their own philosophies, for their own movement of world power, believing that this thing that they believed in would ultimately bring about the ideal world. Prosperity that they had dreamed of. Whether that be a mid-20th century German vision of of an Aryan nation, a communist ideal of true camaraderie amongst the classes, or maybe even the stories we hear today, the visions of the future colonization of the moon or Mars by tech titans who say, this will save us. It's not a new story to hear people putting their hopes in the newest version of human ingenuity or civic innovation or political philosophy. And it's also not a new story to look back on history and see more clearly than in the moment how arrogant or oppressive or misguided so many of those movements really were, even with best intentions. Other people read Isaiah chapter 11 and see in it uh, almost an opposite vision, a strong critique of the abuse of human authority, uh, a, a, a critique of the power of human institutions and governments. They see a vision that is a powerful corrective and advocacy for the poor, for the powerless, for the vulnerable. 
It and texts like it are held up as calls uh, for social justice and judgment on the wealthy and the powerful who have taken advantage of others. And yet, in every human movement that has ever begun by uh, every human movement that has ever begun by uh, angry tearing down of powerful has ultimately only resulted in replacing old oppressors with a new class of powerful and privileged. So what I hope that we'll see today is not only that this passage isn't specifically about America, but that the vision of a peaceable kingdom that Isaiah holds up in chapter 11 is genuinely the kingdom that our hearts long for because it's the kingdom that we were made for. And the leader, the king that Isaiah describes here is the one who we have hoped to find each time we have given our allegiance to someone new or some new idea. And yet, I think we'll also see that it's a kingdom that is impossible to attain as far as human capability is concerned. One for which, like the exiled people in Isaiah's time of Israel, we can only find in the coming of a promised Messiah for whom we anticipate and light a candle this morning and celebrate his advent. So this morning, a peaceable kingdom from Isaiah chapter 11 in three parts. Who is this king? What is this kingdom? And how does the kingdom come? Who is this king? A significant part a significant portion of the book of Isaiah is spent with the message uh, from the prophet that Assyria, the superpower of the late 600s BC, was going to come in and be God's instrument of judgment for his people. Assyria was going to come and destroy Jerusalem and carry God's people into exile for their unfaithfulness to him. The prophet has previously described, and you can read this in uh, longer extent if you'd like in Isaiah chapter 10, but he describes, he paints this, uh, this word picture of Assyria, this world power of the day as an encroaching forest that is overgrowing and overshadowing smaller kingdoms like Israel and like Judah, this great forest that is overtaking all of the smaller groves of the world. But now he says that the empire itself will soon reap the consequences of their arrogance and violence. Here's Isaiah 10, 17 to 19. It says there, the light of Israel will become a fire and his holy, his holy one a flame and it will devour his thorns and briars in one day. The glory of his forest and of his fruitful land the Lord will destroy. The remnant of the trees in his forest will be so few that a child can write them down. The mighty forest that was the superpower of the, of the Assyrian Empire is going to be like a charred California hillside after a wildfire when God gets done with them. And for the record, it's exactly what happened in 609 B.C. Assyria fell to its enemies. And Isaiah says that amongst the ashes of this world empire will not only be the remnants of the forest that was Assyria, but also 
what's left of the exiled kingdom of Israel. Isaiah chapter 11 begins with the description of the house of Jesse, which is the father of the famous King David, and he describes the house of Jesse as a charred stump. The whole book of Isaiah straddles this sort of uh, story of judgment and hope for God's people throughout the book. And while nothing ever rose again from the stubble that was the Assyrian Empire, history testifies that this is not the case for God's people. From her charred stump, from the wreckage, Isaiah tells us that the smallest shoot would creep forth, and from that, shoot a tiny sprout. And the prophet promises that it promises more than just survival for the nation that is God's people, uh, more than just a new nation or a people group, but a new kingdom like none the world has ever known, led by a king, none like none who has ever lived. Who is this king? Isaiah describes the branch growing out of the stump of Jesse. He doesn't, it's interesting that he doesn't say out of the house of David. Rather, he identifies this little branch with, not with David's royalty, but uh, with his shepherd father. Maybe to anticipate that this new heir to the throne of Israel would come from obscurity. And this particular king would be unlike any the world had ever seen and unlike any leader the world has ever encountered since specifically because every human king, every prime minister, every president, every sultan's power is dependent at least in some way on the favor and support of the powerful, of the influential, of the rich, at the very least on the support of the majority, of the populace. This is, and this inevitably, this, this fact inevitably leaves out the poor. It leaves out the powerless. It leaves out the marginal. It leaves the marginalized in the margins. In order for anyone to, as our passage says, truly judge the poor with righteousness and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, that authority, their, that person's authority, would have to come from someplace other than people's affirmation or political power that they have been able to gain? How else could right and just and equitable decisions be made without concern for the upcoming midterm election or without concern for the ramifications and the reactions of big business or the oligarchs or the deep-pocketed super PACs for, uh, who will keep them in office and in power? These kinds of decisions are hardly possible unless this is more than a human sort of kingship that the scripture talks about. And this is exactly the kind of king that Isaiah describes. In verse 2 he says, And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. The presence of the Spirit, uh, the Spirit of God in the Old Testament was often uh, a sign, an indication of a special calling or an empowerment from God. Prophets and priests were anointed with the Spirit. Kings as well were, would receive an anointing. Uh, and yet, we saw so much failure in those figures in the Old Testament. But here, we're told that the Spirit rests upon him. This new king will be characterized, it would seem, by the very breath of God about him. Everything about his leadership will testify to the supernatural endowing of his calling. 
The, the description that Isaiah gives us is a sevenfold description of the Spirit on this person. It says the Spirit of the Lord, of wisdom and understanding and counsel and might and knowledge and fear of the Lord. That sevenfold description, we can uh, explore all of those attributes, but uh, they echo the Hebrew understanding that seven, that they, the number of days in creation, was a number of completeness or perfection. This is the description of one with complete and perfect righteousness and faithfulness, one who knows and fears God perfectly, which scripture and history and our personal experience has told us is humanly impossible. You and I have never encountered a leader who is completely immune to the fear of man. We never encountered someone who is completely dependable to perceive rightly and without bias. We've never known anyone who is unwavering in their integrity, whose judgment is never clouded by self-interest. If there ever was such a person, someone who is supremely concerned about pleasing God and not themselves and honoring God and not someone else's interest, as one commentator says, if, if there should come one in whom God's spirit could dwell completely and purely, that person could be the savior of the world. And the testimony of the New Testament and the Christian church is that Jesus of Nazareth is that person. Jesus, when he arrived on the scene in public ministry, he said and quoted Isaiah the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim liberty to captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed and proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Another commentator says, unlike every other human in the sorry length of our history, Jesus is literally qualified to rule the world. This is the king who's coming. We celebrate at Advent and who's coming again. We await with anticipation. What is this kingdom? I saw a weird YouTube video this week about an unlikely friendship between a lion named Bone Digger and a wiener dog named Abby. I can give you the link if you want to watch it. <laughs> is this the kingdom that the Messiah brings? Is it going to be like one big weird YouTube video? <laughs> the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, the lion with the fattened calf together. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. People will watch. You can get pretty tangled up trying to interpret this and uh, it, you, you can get pretty tangled up in trying to interpret this uh, too literally. And you could come out believing that if you, uh, if, if you believe Isaiah 11, that God wants lions to be vegetarians, which I don't think is the point. The overarching point is that in the coming of this king's reign, fear, insecurity, danger, and evil will be removed, both for individuals and for the world as well. 
We read a passage from the book of Romans this morning during our confession that echoes this anticipation that the coming of the Messiah, in, in his coming, all of creation will be released from the curse of sin and liberated from its bondage to decay. Verse 11, uh, chapter 11, verse 6 to 8 uh, says, And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. This sounds like a mother's nightmare. But I think that's exactly the point. You can't hardly read that without feeling the instinct to leap into the text and snatch that baby away from the snakes safely away from sudden and arbitrary death, right? What more effective way could Isaiah communicate the conviction that in this Messiah's day, death itself will be conquered? God's beloved snatched away from death's clutches by a Messiah who came as a child and conquered death when he died as a man on the cross. The kingdom Isaiah says this king will bring will be unlike anyone we've ever known. He will not be a reformer. His job is not. He did not come to attempt to renovate and repair a pretty good but broken system. He will not be an avenger demanding vengeance and restitution. His kingdom will be a restoration of creation, a restoration of humanity as it was meant to be without fear and without insecurity and without danger because it has been returned into the relationship that it once had with its creator and its sustainer. And the passage we read this morning says, the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. This kind of kingdom. How does the kingdom come? It's become a family tradition at the carpenter house um, to cut a Christmas tree together on the weekend following Thanksgiving. For the last few years, we've gotten a permit and cut a tree from the national forest here in the Sierra Nevadas. We make a day of it, we get lunch, we drive up to the foothills, we trudge around together in the woods. Last year, however, what we thought was great luck uh, got sideways. You see, uh, we were lucky enough to get a pass to the El Dorado Forest, which is usually the hardest to get. And that's because it's the most popular, it's the most convenient, you don't have to drive as far. We couldn't believe it. We're so lucky. We still thought we were lucky until I walked into the chainsaw shop in Shingle Springs to ask the guy where the best place to cut a Christmas tree was that year. And he looked at me with a sarcastic grin and reminded me, city slicker that I was, that El Dorado County had been the site of the Mosquito Fire that year, California's largest wildfire of 2022, and there were no trees to cut. Every place we looked was just charred hillsides and remnants of evergreen trees uh, anything that was remotely an evergreen tree had no unburned branches closer to the ground than six or eight feet. Needless to say, last year we came home with a pretty ridiculously scrawny baby Charlie Brown tree that could hardly hold our ornaments. The Hebrew word that Isaiah uses when he says, there shall come forth 
a shoot from the stump of Jesse, can be translated with context. It either means a small child or a shoot or a sapling. And the picture either way is one of a tiny sign of life, a tiny spree, a a tiny tree sprouting up from a charred stump on a devastated hillside, a nondescript baby born in poverty, tangentially related to the line of King David, not in the capital city of Jerusalem, but in Bethlehem, a city too little to be among the clans of Judah, a nobody in a nowhere place in a conquered kingdom. This kingdom was not coming into the world with an explosion and a conquering horde, but like a mustard seed, a seed that falls to the ground and dies and disappears for a long time before anything happens, like a tiny leaf appearing in the crux of a burned-out stump. This is a reoccurring theme in the book of Isaiah. It reminds us again and again of the king coming to manger. In his kingdom, not only are ferocious and wild animals depicted as being without danger, but we're told that they have not only been tamed, they've, not been, they've been tamed not by a great warrior or a conqueror, but by a baby. A little child shall lead them. God will overcome the sophistication and the cynicism and the violence of the world's power with simplicity and innocence and patience and long-suffering and faith like a child. And this is how he comes in our lives as well. Jesus comes when you realize that your best efforts and grandest plans have not only failed to save you, but have left you burned out disappointed, and unfulfilled. Jesus comes when we realize that we cannot justify ourselves or prove our worth and that what we have done to try to do those things has only caused hurt and destroyed relationships and taken advantage of other people. Jesus comes when we realize that all of our own efforts and designs have left our hearts like burned out stumps, dead in sin. Jesus comes when we come to the end of ourselves and cry out to God. And God, the book of Ephesians tells us, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead, made us alive together in Christ. By grace, you have been saved. When by confession we dethrone ourselves from our own hearts, and by faith allow Christ to be king. Not only does he promise forgiveness and restoration of relationship with God, but he promises to come by his spirit and regenerate our dead hearts. To begin to grow in us something new. Something that will grow up from a tiny shoot into eternal life. My friends, this is the king and the kingdom that we begin to anticipate at Advent by lighting a single candle and praying that a great light would come.